Tonight we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 18 and we started chapter 18 last week and we got about five verses in and we're going to pick up around verse five. But just to give you a kind of a quick review, uh, maybe if you weren't here or if you are like me and can tend to forget easily. Last week we kind of, we began, so we're in Paul's second missionary journey and he stopped at Corinth, which of course is one of the main churches in the New Testament that we know about just because we have two letters to Corinth and both of them are very long letters. So there's a lot of information in the New Testament about Corinth. And so he stopped in Corinth and he met a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Y'all remember that? Priscilla and Aquila, and they became close friends with Paul, and actually Paul ended up living with them for the time he was in Corinth, which was about 18 months. They were both tent makers, so they, they worked together, they ministered together, and as I mentioned last week in Paul's last letter that he writes in the New Testament, he mentions Priscilla and Aquila in that letter, which means they had, they had been in relationship for the total duration of his ministry, which is kind of a feat in and of itself, because Paul had a lot of acquaintances come and go, but they stayed with him the whole time. So we pick up, I'm going to actually begin reading in verse 1 again, just to kind of set up verses 5 through the remainder. So let's start there, Acts 18.1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. You remember <clears throat> we talked a little bit about the persecution in Rome that led to them having to flee. Uh, and he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, this... Uh, point that we've made several times, which is when Paul goes to a new city, this is kind of his step one, which is to go to the Jewish synagogue and to begin trying to explain to the Jews, first of all, the gospel, explain to them the Christ. He uses the Old Testament scriptures to explain to them the Christ, hoping that because they're the chosen people of God, uh, because they are the covenant people of God, and that because they have a tremendous amount of information and God's laws and all of that, that they're going to be open to the gospel. Yet time and time again, that's not what he finds. He just finds frustration. And so that's where we pick up in verse 5. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, because you, you remember uh, from a couple weeks ago that they'd been left behind in Berea. When they were in Berea, Paul left Silas and Timothy there. Now they're catching up to him in Corinth. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, if you've been with us, you know, and you've been maybe here since the beginning of the semester, you'll realize that this isn't the first time he has said something like this. As a matter of fact, Acts 13, 36, the same thing. It was when he and Barnabas were together. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, talking to the Jews, 
But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Yet, <laughs> here we are in chapter 18, and he's still preaching to the Jews. And every city that, we, every city that he stops in, this is still what he does. He preaches to the Jews. Even though all the way back in chapter 13, which was on his first missionary journey, so probably some three or four years earlier, he's, he's, he's frustrated and he's saying, look, you, you're not, you don't respond. You don't, you don't, you're not open. Your heart is hard. You know what? We're tired of ministering to y'all. We are turning to the Gentiles. We're going to turn to some people that are actually open. And when you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it's real easy to see that the majority of the Corinthian church, they were Gentiles. They were not Jewish people. When you read the epistles, you, all the things that he's having to address are not Jewish issues. They're Gentile issues. Uh, and so we're not going to get into that tonight. But that's when you read the First and Second Corinthians, you find out that that's mostly the fruit that he had in Corinth. It, it was not with the Jews. It was with the Gentiles. But one of the things that stood out to me is how it just seemed like Paul would not give up would not give up on the Jews, even though he's so frustrated with them, even though he considered himself an apostle to the Gentiles. He calls himself that. Yet he still, every time he goes, he's reaching out to the Jews. Now, I'm going to show you, we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight, and we're going to read from the book of Romans because he actually explains his mindset in the book of Romans why he does this. So if you are reading and studying the book of Acts and you're like, man, why does Paul keep beating his head against a brick wall, you know, and going to the Jews when it seems like the only fruit he's having is with the Gentiles. Why does he keep going to the Jews? He kind of explains himself in the book of Romans, which we're going to get to in a minute. But before we get there, and, and interestingly, this isn't the last time he does this, even though here again he states, look, forget it, your blood be your own heads, I'm innocent, from now on we go to the Gentiles. The very next city he stops in is Ephesus, and guess what he does? Same thing. He goes back to the synagogue. And I want to say a few things about this, okay? It, with God, this, this goes for, I believe, people groups, certainly, because we see this with Jews and Gentiles. This goes for nations. This goes for individuals. That there is always a season or a window of repentance, there's always a season or a window where God is withholding judgment, withholding consequences, not because he doesn't see it, not because he, he's blind to it, but because he's trying to give you, the person, the individual, the nation, he's trying to give space for repentance. Then there comes a moment where that window closes. And when that window closes, that's when all of a sudden the consequences begin to hit. And see, when a, when a person, when an individual has been used to living in that season of, re, of uh, repentance and grace being extended, they don't understand it when all of a sudden that window closes and the consequences are hitting them right between the eyes. And as a pastor, I've had the opportunity to walk through people in this season of their life over and over again. For, you know, they had years to repent. Years to get things right. Years where they were sowing into the flesh, sowing into sin, sowing a life of sin, making bad choices, not living right, not doing what they should do. 
then all of a sudden that, that season and that window of repentance closes and it seems like every time they sin, it's like the consequences just slap them in the face. There's no more, it seems like the grace ran out. Well, in a sense, that's because it has. That, all of that time that could have been happening. Because see, every time we sin, just one sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. God's made it very clear in the New Testament. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In other words, in other words, don't think that because you're not experiencing a harvest of your sin or on what you've been sowing, don't think that God's not seeing it. He said, God will, God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. He will reap it. As humans, sometimes we get confused about this because we see somebody living like that and we think, man, it seems like they're doing all the wrong things and nothing bad, they just, nothing bad ever happens to them. They just keep getting away. Everything seems to go about fine in their life. Not that we should want that in people's lives, but just wait because there's a harvest on that always. And what I've noticed is when a person has received a lot of grace and a lot of mercy and judgment has been withheld and consequences have been withheld, and then all of a sudden when that window of repentance, that season of repentance closes and all those consequences begin hitting them right between the eyes, they, are, they don't understand it. They, they don't get it. It's like, it's like how, how, why is this happening to me? What have I done? Well, you don't realize that that should have been happening all along, but it was the mercy and the grace of God that was withholding it because he would rather you repent than get judgment. He would rather you repent. And look, if you were at the very end of that window, let's say you'd lived years in that season where God was extending mercy and you just squandered it, wasted, and you were right at the very end and you decided to repent, the merciful and good God that we serve, usually he'll wipe out all of that judgment. Think about Nineveh, when Jonah went to Nineveh. And that's why Jonah was so mad. Jonah was upset because, you know, Babylon, you know, Nineveh was so evil and and he was going, and they, they had done the most horrific things, horrible things, and, and Jonah was mad because God just forgave him in an instant. But please understand that that's a season that we are not to take for granted. It's a season that if we disrespect it and if we trample on it, eventually those consequences will hit us right between the eyes. That goes for individuals. That goes for nations. Okay, that, that goes for families. That goes for churches. This is, this is the process. And he describes it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, he's explaining why bad people get away with things and why the judgment of God is not swift and why, for example, Jesus has not returned yet to bring judgment on the whole earth. Why, why has that not happened? How many of you, at any time in your life growing up, you heard, Jesus is coming back? <laughs> I know I grew up in church, I heard it all the time. Jesus is coming back. And that's true, He is coming back. Why hasn't He come back? This explains. He's not, it's not that He's slow to fulfill His promise. But He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Paul had this mentality in his heart. And I think what we're seeing in Paul's frustration with them and what we're, what we're seeing with his strategy of going to the synagogue, getting frustrated and telling them, look, we're going to the Gentiles, you're seeing that window close. 
You're, you're seeing that window and that time of repentance for the Jewish people. You're seeing it come to a close. So it's not quite closed yet. We're kind of like at the tail end of it. And you see Paul is brokenhearted about it. He's devastated about it. He wants them so bad because he knows. Even, even Jesus. Think about how Jesus said the same thing. He was, he was walking through Jerusalem and he said, oh, he said, how many times... I would, have, I would have swooped you up like a mother hen and just, and just brought you in. And he said, but you would, not, you would not have it. You would not repent. He, Jesus was brokenhearted over it. So Paul, who's a Jew himself, he's brokenhearted over it. I mean, sometimes we could feel like this about our nation, right, as Americans. I mean, we look at our nation. I love the nation I live in. I love my country. I'm so glad to be an American. But sometimes it is heartbreaking to watch your nation move away from God and turn away from God, to turn towards immorality and sin. And it seems that every year that passes that we're moving further and further away. It's very heartbreaking. So you could see what it would take for you to want to just give up on your country and give up and say, you know, forget America, we're going somewhere else. Well, that, that would be very hard to do. We love our country. Well, that's the same thing with Paul. Paul loves the Jewish people. He understands the great heritage of the Jewish people, the great covenant that they had with God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the, the, the law who was given to the Jewish people, the way they came out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. He knows all of this. And so he wants so badly just, and, and Paul's probably thinking, you know, man, if I could just present it another way, if I could just explain it another way, maybe they would get it. He goes back to the synagogue over and over and over again. He says he reasoned every Sabbath, reasoned every Sabbath, going in and just, just trying to explain it, just so maybe they could get it. Maybe you could explain it another way, and it'll finally get that breakthrough. And they never seem to get it. So what eventually happens is we end up where we kind of are today. That window of repentance seems to have closed on the Jewish people. And so there's just not a lot of, uh, of Jewish people that you know, come to Christ. Some do. Anybody can. It's not that anyone can't. It's just that that window has closed to a degree. But it will open again, and that's one of the things we're about to read about. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read some of these things. We're going to read over a few chapters in Romans. And this will help you understand every time we come across this in Acts of this relationship that Paul has with the Jews. So Romans 9, 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is... You want, to see, you want to know why he couldn't just walk away? This is what he was experiencing. He said, I'm telling you by the, by the Holy Spirit is my witness. He said, I live in constant sorrow and anguish that they have rejected God. And he said, I wish that I myself could trade places with him. And this is the most shocking part about what he says. He says, if I could trade places with them and I could be cursed and cut off from God on my way to hell, I would do it if it would mean that my brothers could be saved and could know God. And I've jokingly said before, I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not going to hell for anybody, okay? I love you, but you can repent like everyone else. I'm not going to hell for you. I'm sorry, not going to happen. 
But <laughs> he said, I wish myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Even Jesus is a Jew. He came, the Messiah came out of the, the lineage of the Israelites. According to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. So this is not something that Paul's going to let go of easily. And he, he actually never lets go of it. Because Romans is, is, is written much later than where we're at now. So when he was in Corinth... This was about, Romans was written about seven years after Corinth. So, so when he's in Corinth, you know, he's kind of, I'm giving up on the Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles. And then seven years later, he's still writing this in Romans about the Jews. And he's still carrying, look at that, that great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for the Jewish people. You know, I, and, I, and I know that we don't feel exactly the way Paul does, but but we should carry the lost in our heart to at least a measure of this, to at least a degree of this. You know, we, we, should, we should carry a burden for the lost, those who are cut off from Christ, those who have not come to the, to the knowledge of the truth just yet. Okay, skip ahead to chapter 10, Romans 10.1. He keeps talking about this issue. Romans 10.1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge or not according to the correct knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteous, righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he says, my heart's desire for them is that they be saved. But one of the problems is, is that they don't understand the righteousness of God. They don't understand that it's not by works. And really what he sort of goes on to explain in other places is, is that when you've been so used to being made right with God by trying to follow the law and, and trying to follow all the precepts of the law, it's really hard to believe that righteousness comes by faith. It's not by works of the law. And that's where, their, that's where their struggle was. Romans 11. Let's go one more chapter over. Romans 11, 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Talking about Israel. <clears throat> has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, no, God's not rejected Israel. Even though that window has closed, he's not given up on them completely. And that Jewish people can still be saved. He says, hey, I'm an example of that. He said, I'm a Jew and I, and I got saved. Look at verse 17. Now, this is where he begins to relate it to, this is where he begins to relate it to the Gentiles that he's writing to in the book of Romans. He begins to explain how they got alienated from God and that they're not unique in that, and that actually anyone can be alienated from God, and then also anybody can repent and come back to God. And that's basically what he explains in these next few verses. We're going to read quite a bit of it here, verse 17. 
He says, but if, and he uses the example of a tree and uh, another, you know, being grafted in, branches being broken off and, and another limb being grafted in. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, talking about the Jewish people, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So he's telling the Gentiles, he says, look, you, you were not part of the family of God. Okay? These people, the Jewish people, they were the original covenant people of God. But they kept rejecting God. They kept sinning. They kept turning away from God. And so eventually they were broken off and you were grafted in. But he said, don't be arrogant about it. Because they were actually before you. So he said, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Amen. Amen. Then you will say, well, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. <laughs> he said, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. In other words, have, have the fear of God, like we were talking about a, a few Sundays ago. For if God, and notice verse 20, for if God did not spare the natural branches, now just remember, we're in the New Testament here. Okay, we're not reading Old Testament. This is New Testament. And this is what he says. He's reminding them. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. My goodness, see, this is something that just doesn't get talked about very often. Especially people that are outside the church, they only want to talk about the love and kindness and mercy of God. Well, I thought God was a good God. Yep, God is a good God. He's, he is a very merciful, He's a very loving God. But how many know sometimes uh, love and mercy might look a little different than you think it looks? Because God is also a God of justice. So He says, listen, don't become proud, but remain in a state of humility or fear or reverence about your position in Christ. Don't take it for granted. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, don't think that you're different from the Jewish people. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Look, provided that you continue in his kindness. And this is part of the New Testament that people somehow just overlook. I mean, I've talked to people through the years... Somehow they overlook how many times in the Bible we are told to endure in the gospel. To endure in the knowledge of the gospel. To remain steadfast. To continue. And that's what he says. It is not enough to start. You have to continue. It's, it's not enough to just to say, well, I was saved at one time or, and you did well for a year or two. No, no. You have to continue in that all the way to the end. The Bible talks about remaining all the way to the end. So he says, the severity of the, notice the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For our God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul is looking forward to a time where the Jewish people actually will be saved. And this is one of the principles, uh, teachings of Scripture. There are many Old Testament prophecies towards the Jewish people that have not yet been fulfilled. And Paul knows this. And so he's saying it's a very sad state that we're in right now that they are apart from God and they're separated. Even he would say cut off from God at the moment. But he said it's not always going to be that way. Actually, there's going to be a time where they're grafted back in. So however that happens, whatever that looks like, there's going to be a great revival among the, the Jewish people. And there's a lot of speculation about what that's going to look like. We don't know that exactly. But Paul's very clear that, yeah, there is a time where they're going to be grafted back in. Uh, and actually, he goes on to say that in verse 25. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Now, anytime you see in Scripture that there's been a hardening, and it's interesting that he says a partial hardening. That, that's interesting. But anytime you see where God made somebody's heart hard, like Pharaoh is probably the clearest example where Pharaoh would have let the people go after the third or fourth plague and it says God hardened his heart. So he didn't let them go. And then after the fifth or sixth plague, you know, he was broken, he was humble, he said, all right, just go. And God said, nope, and he hardened his heart. And he, and he rebelled again. And sometimes people read that and they go, well, that's not Pharaoh's fault. I mean, how can he be judged for that? You know, he's, he's being, God's hardening his heart. He couldn't have let them go if he wanted to. And so in this same situation, you see that there's a partial hardening of the, Israel, of, of the nation of Israel, of the Jewish people. There's a par, it says partial hardening of their heart. In other words, uh, they couldn't even repent if they wanted to, at least partially. Why? Anytime you see that in Scripture, it's always an act of judgment. It's not arbitrary. It, it, the, it, it came after multiple attempts to get that person, that nation, to repent. And after repentance had been refused and those consequences are coming, now it's time where the Bible says the, the window for, for repentance has closed. And this is why I always say that repentance is a gift. And, and anytime you feel the need to repent, anytime you're convicted of sin, anytime you feel bad, because of something you did, something you said, a certain way you acted, you should realize that is a gift to even be able to feel that. Because once a person has been rejected or hardened or, or a nation, they can't repent without the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart or life. And I've met many people, seen many people, they have no desire to repent. Couldn't repent if they wanted to. Because they, that time has, not that, not that God wouldn't allow them to ever come to that place, but they're not experiencing the desire to repent. So anytime you feel convicted of sin, it's a gift. Say, praise God. Don't, don't beat yourself up. Oh, you know, I feel so bad about this. Look, the positive side of it is that, man, I feel bad about this. That's good. That means the Holy Spirit's still working in my life. That means repentance is still being extended to me. I can repent. I can ask God to forgive me. I can be restored back to right relationship. That's a gift. But in this case... He says there was a partial hardening that has occurred. 
He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Look at that. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul looks at this passage this Old Testament prophecy as not having been fulfilled yet and that it's yet something to happen in the future. And he says all of Israel will be saved. So now we understand a little bit better why Paul went to the Jews the way that he did and why he felt about them the way that he did. He knows that actually God has not given up on them even though there might be a season, there might be a partial hardening. And the fact that he says partial hardening, I guess his mentality was, well, if it's partial, there might be still a few in here that could respond. So I'm going to keep going to the synagogue. I'm going to keep going in and, and preaching the gospel. And maybe, maybe some of them can still repent. And, and that actually is what happens. He does have some fruit, but it's just not nearly as much fruit as he has with the Gentiles. All right, so going back to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Verse 6, he tells them, When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. But yet, we know he doesn't continue only to do that, because in the very next city, he still does go to the Jews. First, Verse 7, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So see, there's one of those Jews that he has fruit with. If Crispus, Crispus was the Jewish leader of the synagogue, and he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So there, there still was fruit there. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, again, we know from reading the letters to the Corinthians that the many of the Corinthians that he's talking about who believed and were baptized, yeah, the most, uh, most of them were Gentiles. When you read the letters to the Corinthians, you can see that very clearly. This is not, these are not Jewish books. He's writing to people that are very unfamiliar with the law, unfamiliar with, you know, uh, Christian morality, godly morality, Bible morality, very unfamiliar with that. So you can tell when you read the letters, most of them were Gentiles, but still, it is mentioned here that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and they were baptized. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So let me say a few things about this. When you read the book of Acts, you get the impression, sometimes you can get the impression, that visits from angels, dreams, visions that these things were just a very common, regular occurrence. And then, 
of course, I've had this thought, and I'm sure many of you have too. I'm like, man, where's all the uh, visions and dreams and things like that now? Because there's a lot of times that I would love to have a vision and God show up and say, Josh, here's exactly what I want you to do. You were about to do this. That was wrong. I need you to do this. How many of you would love to have that? Ah, you know, and Paul was full of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't like he didn't have the Holy Spirit in him. Because sometimes people say that. They say, well, we have the Holy Spirit now, so we don't need that. Not true. We do have the Holy Spirit, praise God. And I thank God for the Holy Spirit in me. But uh, every now and then, I'd like a little bit of writing on the wall. Just, you know, making it really, really plain exactly what I'm supposed to do. But, and the Bible does say that in the last days, that kind of stuff will increase. But... Actually, it's not, it was not as common as you think. Okay, I'm not saying that it was altogether rare. But Paul, it's, it's listed in Scripture six times that this happened to him. Which again, not rare. But over a 30-year ministry, that's once every five years. Okay, so about every five years, Paul would have something like this supernatural happen. And by the way, we are talking about the man who almost, you know, single-handedly got the New Testament church up off the ground. So, and was planting all, and writing two-thirds of the New Testament, you know, and all of that. So he needed a little extra hand in what he was doing, maybe. But, okay, so once every five years, why do I say that? Well, even if you're Paul and you're getting these type of miraculous communications from God, it's still happening on average, once every five years. So that's just not enough communication with God. I mean, I can't hear from God on what to do once every five years. I've got to hear from God what to do every day. And especially if you're Paul, do I leave this city? Do I not leave this city? How long do I stay? When do I leave? When do I go? He's got to know this stuff all the time. He's got to know who to appoint, who not to appoint. Well, I was going to appoint this one, but Something doesn't feel right about him, so I'm going to leave this guy. I mean, he's got to know from the Holy Spirit all the time what he's supposed to do. So thank God for the very clear visions and angels and that sort of thing. But even with that, it really wasn't something that he could depend on. It was something that was an unusual, rare moment. And then daily, like the rest of us, he's got to learn to pray and seek God and hear from the Holy Spirit. And then I also have read in the New Testament where Paul said, he, he's, t he's telling the Galatians, he says, look, even if an angel appears to you and says something different than what I'm saying, you need to reject it. Why? He said, well, because we know that Satan can appear as an angel of light. So he said, I don't care if you had a vision, I don't care if you had a prophecy, I don't care if an angel appeared to you. He said, you still have to judge it by the Holy Spirit. So, I'm saying that because a lot of times immature or young Christians, this is really what they want. They, they want a vision, they want a dream, they want a, they want a writing on the wall, they want somebody to prophesy over them and tell them why. Because it, it can be kind of hard to hear from God, right? We're not going to just all be in here super spiritual like we can all hear from God super easy, right? It takes discipline, it takes time set aside. It can be difficult to train your spiritual ears to hear from God. And man, wouldn't it be so much easier just to get a vision? Just to have an angel appear? Have a voice come out of the clouds and say, you know, Hey, Josh, turn left. Go right. Do this. That would be so good. But look, that's not the norm. It's not the norm. 
Not that it can't happen. Not that it may never happen in your life. It's just not going to be the norm. The norm is what the Bible calls the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to say that I depend on that every day. I depend on the Holy Spirit on the inside of me to lead me, guide me, to know what to do. Sometimes it's as simple as, mm, that don't feel right. I don't know why. That doesn't feel right. I'm not doing that. And that's all I needed to know. I actually didn't need some big explanation or a big angel telling me what to... I just all I needed to know was, mm, that, didn't know, that didn't feel right. And look, even in this exact instance, what is the purpose of the vision? Here was the purpose of the vision. Do not leave Corinth. Go on preaching. Keep, keep working. Could he have got that from the leading of the Spirit? Yeah, I believe he can. Could have, and I believe that he did in other places. How did Paul... Well, one way we can know is because he ended up leaving, the Bible says, a year and six months later, and he didn't have a vision. So how did he know to leave? I mean, think about that. He has a vision where the Lord shows... To, so, so we're assuming Jesus, says the Lord, said to Paul in a vision, do not leave, go on speaking, I am with you, no one will attack you. So he had a vision where Jesus showed up and said, don't leave Corinth, stay here and work, yet he ends up leaving 18 months later. Where did he get the green light to go ahead and leave 18 months later? I mean, if you had Jesus in the flesh show up and tell you, don't go somewhere, don't do something, how long would you stay and do it? I mean, I guess until I die, if I never get another vision, right? I guess I'm just in Corinth forever now. Well, something 18 months later let him know it's okay to leave. And we don't see anything about, an, we don't see anything about a vision. So I presume that how he was normally being led by the Spirit, just in his heart, he knew, okay, it's time to leave Corinth. And he knew that by the Holy Spirit in him. So he could have heard that from the Spirit. He had a vision in this instance. Now, why did he get a vision? Well, we don't know. I mean, I mean we don't know why he had a vision for this exactly, why he wasn't just, you know, led by the Spirit and whatnot. But it does seem like he was about to leave. I mean, be, uh, there's no point in the vision unless he was about to leave. So, you know, maybe he thought, maybe the resistance he experienced with the Jews, whatever it was, he was about to leave. And the whole point of the vision was to say, actually, look, I don't want you to be afraid. That's the first thing he says, do not be afraid. And you could see where Paul may have been dealing with a little bit of fear because in a lot of the cities he was in, the Jews would start to get riled up like they were doing here. Riots would begin. He might get beat, stoned, put in prison. So he, he's looking at that, and he's thinking, I'm not ready to go through that again. I'd rather keep doing the work somewhere else. So you could see he's about getting ready to leave, and the Lord shows up and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. So that, that tells us what the temptation was. The temptation was to leave and be quiet and stop doing the work. He said, For I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Meaning, I have many who are going to respond. I have many sons and daughters in this place, future sons and daughters, that are going to respond to your work. And so he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. Okay, verse 12. But when... Galeo was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. 
saying this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now this is interesting, first of all, because when you go back and look at the vision, it doesn't say that he will have no trials. It doesn't say that he will have no difficulty. It doesn't say that he will have no resistance. It says no one will attack you to harm you. So words are not violence. <laughs> That's a, never mind, if y'all didn't get that, don't worry about that. Words are not violence, okay? Difficulty is not harm. He doesn't say you're not going to have any trials, any resistance, any difficulty. He says no one's going to attack you, okay? You're not going to be violently attacked. You're not going to be punched in the face. You're not going to have rocks thrown at you. You're not going to have rods come across your, your back. And so the standard for, <laughs> the standard, God's standard, of what he expected Paul to endure was not uh, maybe as, lo as low as some of ours might be. It's like, man, these people are mean. You know, this is difficult. This is hurtful. These people are talking about me. No, not a, that's like, no, that don't even count. This is God, God saying that don't even count, okay? What I'm saying is there will be no physical harm to you. You will not be physically hurt. The rest of it, I'm trusting you can deal with, okay? So that was the vision. Well, and immediately in verse 12, he goes on to experience some difficulty. They brought him before the tribunal. They said, this man is persuading people to worship God, contrary to the law. But you do see God step in, because verse 14, But when Paul was about to open his mouth, he was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Now, let me just briefly tell you what's going on here. We see this probably four or five times between the Gospels and the book of Acts where this same thing happens because they were under Roman rule. And so the Jews had a lot of authority, a lot of authority, but in, in certain aspects of the law, they had no authority, and so they had to go to the Romans, the Roman governors or, you know, the tribunals of the Romans, and they had to basically, to punish someone to the degree that they wanted to, they had to get Roman approval. You see this through the Gospels and the book of Acts, where this happens multiple times. The Jews come, they bring them before the Romans, and so that's what's happening here. Same way Jesus was crucified, and, and Pilate, of course, get, ends up giving in and crucifies Jesus. So they're doing the same thing to them. But look at this. He says, the, the uh, Roman proconsul says, look, this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law. Look, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. In other words, this isn't my job. This ain't what I'm here for. These are things y'all can decide. He drove them from the tribunal. And look, they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal but Galio paid no attention to any of these things. So, so here's what happens. If you remember Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue earlier who got saved, well, when he got, he was the Jewish leader of the synagogue. Well, when he got saved, he had to step down and they appoint this new guy, Sothenes. <laughs> so, difficult first week on the job for, for Sothenes. But he, he gets put in as leader and he makes the decision well, I'm not going to be like this weak guy Christmas. We're going to put a stop to this. So he gets everybody riled up against Paul. He's going to attack Paul. Well, the whole thing backfires 
the whole thing backfires on him. He brings them before the tribunal and he wastes everybody's time. And when, when the, the leader of the tribunal, he says, no, we're not doing this. I don't want anything to do it. Then his own people turn on him. <laughs> and it says, they all seized Sothenes, who was the ruler of synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galio, the Roman guy, paid no attention to any of this. So the whole thing backfired on him. It wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. One interesting thing, though, is that when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.1, this is what it says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sophonies. <laughs> so, from what every you know, scholar that I could find believes is that this is the same guy. So, it seems like later... <laughs> It seemed like later this guy ended up getting saved. And, and right, you know, but this is how he started out. <laughs> Again, not a good first, first week on the job, but it seems like he ended up getting saved. Maybe he just needed a little attitude adjustment, you know, and then he could see things clearly. I'm not sure what, what happened there, but he ends up, seemed like he ends up serving out and even traveling with Paul because he's not in Corinth when Paul's writing this letter. He's with Paul writing back to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 1. Amen. So that ends, uh, mostly ends, we've got a couple of verses, but that mostly ends uh, chapter 18. And it, we're very, very close to being finished with Paul's second missionary journey. And then he picks up immediately on his third missionary journey. So we're probably going to have time to get through Paul's third missionary journey this semester, I think. Um, but this just gives you a lot of information about the Corinthian church. And while it's fresh, I would encourage you in your devotional time at home, I would encourage you to read through First and Second Corinthians while this is fresh because it's just, it'll give you a fresh new perspective on those books. When you read them and just thinking about how the church was planted and all the issues Paul went through and Priscilla and Aquila and poor old Sothenes and you know all that. You could just read through it, and it'll give you that fresh perspective and vision as you read it. So I encourage you to read First and Second Corinthians you know, in your devotional time over the next few weeks. I think that uh, what we've studied will you know, add a lot to that. Amen?